I'm Carrie Bickmore. Welcome to Brains Trust. In this podcast, we will enlist the country's most interesting, funny and often complex people to help us reflect and understand our lives a little better. They aren't experts necessarily, but they all have curious minds, big brains and love a laugh. This Brains Trust of well-known Australians has been gathered together by journalist and producer Chris Walker. Hi, Carrie. Who are we here from, Chris? I've spoken to people that I admire, people that I care about and people that I work with. I'm Chris Brown. I'm a, uh, a veterinarian. My name's Adam Briggs. I'm a Yoda Yoda man. I'm Ryan Chang. I'm a stand-up comedian. Uh, my name's Annabelle Crabb. I'm Willie Dali. Hello, I'm Kitty Flanagan. My name's Hamish Blake. I am a first-year apprentice homeschool teacher. Each episode will move between these awesome guests, like an eavesdrop on the ultimate conversation. So before we bury 2020 deep in our memory, we're going to walk through it all again and see how it changed us and what we learnt along the way. Let's continue Season 1 of Brains Trust. In this episode, we're looking at how the natural world coped in 2020. This may surprise you, but there are up to 10 billion viruses in just one droplet of seawater. We can't see them, but they're literally everywhere. Yet very few are infectious. This year, one particularly infectious virus took over a million lives worldwide and perhaps, understandably, took everybody's focus away from the plight of the environment and its animals. We will hear a lot from our resident veterinarian, Dr Chris Brown, in this episode, and he starts with how 2020 even affected the treatment of animals in his vet clinic. There haven't been owners present in a consultation, so it's just you and a dog for, for 20 minutes having a chat uh, about the world, which which has created some very unique um, unique situations, especially when you're in Bondi and, and the dog's name is Goji Berry or, uh, or Quinoa. <laughs> Um, <laughs> no, there's much less Fido in Bondi. It's, it's true. You, you've got to be free trade, uh, single origin, and, and preferably a superfood to really make it as a pet in Bondi. Um, but I, I have had people rush in. I had a lady rush in only, only a few months ago, actually, because her dog was frothing, um, and which, which dogs often do yeah, if, if they're overheating or if they've been exercising, had froth coming out of his mouth. And she and she came in in tears and she said, "Oh, my dog, my dog, he's he's got COVID. I'm covered in it. Um, I'm covered in COVID." And I was like, "Why? Why do you think that?" And she said, oh, "Look at the froth. Look at the froth. It's COVID." I said, "Had to." And she was an intelligent woman, so I had to reassure her that no, no, that that's um that's just that's just froth. That's just that's just what happens when dog drool meets air. Everyday froth. Yeah, yeah, it was just it was just froth. Like the dog had just been running around in the park. And more importantly, do you talk to the animals? Yeah, I do. What are you talking about? I don't know. Like it's not it's not a conscious thing that, like I, I don't lodge serious intellectual questions and and to them. It's it's more just a reassurance thing. And, and you, it's just like hi, Fred, nice bollocks. Pretty pretty much. Yeah, like you you just you just engage with them, and I, I think that that is calming for them. And, that, and they they obviously don't understand a hell of a lot of what you're saying. But you imagine yourself, if you go to a foreign country and you don't understand the language, all you've got is the body language that someone's giving you and, and the tone of their voice to, mm. to judge whether they, they want to, you know, extradite you from the country or, or lock you up or, or they want to, to have a beer with you. And and so it's kind of the same with pets, the way I say it. It's a big spectrum, Chris. <laughs> 
not even going off past experience. Do you want to deport me? <laughs> well, it's just, I, I think it's just a reassuring thing to, to let them know that you acknowledge them, that, that the, you're, you're on their side and, and, and it's it's almost like the it's it's the appetizer to, to what's to come, which is usually some sort of probing. Um, so it's it's often good to um, to have them on side. I like to be spoken to before I'm probed. But I think it's the least you can do. Animals managed to find themselves at the epicentre of many of the big events in 2020, but none more so than the bat, with the wet markets of Wuhan considered the most likely culprit for causing the pandemic. Interestingly, the virus was deliberately called the fairly innocuous name of COVID-19, the CO standing for corona, the VI for virus and D for disease, with 19 denoting the year it was discovered. This was to avoid the stigma various regions of people and animals copped after recent epidemics such as swine flu in 2009 and MERS in 2012. Ronnie Cheng isn't so sure stigma was avoided this time around. Do you think this year has placed a greater stigma on Asian culture? Yeah, I think definitely. I think there's a lot of ignorance. I think, um, first of all, I think that bat thing, I don't think it was someone eating a bat. I I don't know, but I'm just saying that nobody actually knows what this idea that some Asian guy ate a bat is a bad joke that everyone kind of latched onto, you know? I've never seen anyone eat a bat. I didn't even know where to buy one. If you ask me to... If you, I've never seen it before. So, you know, that's like, that's first and foremost is like, no one's eating that. And I think in the West, in white people countries, white people know that Asian people don't eat that. Like, I don't think any white person has ever hung out with their Asian friends and seen them suggest eating it or a picture of them eating it or a story of them eating it. Like, I don't think, it's not like a common thing. That's not how, you know, Asian people roll. And I say Asian mm. people because it's like there's so many types of Asian people, like, mm. and we're very different. Yeah, they're not monolithic. Yeah, they're not monolithic at all, and and we're very different. And this idea that we all get lumped into whoever the f- was doing that shit with vats is 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 kind of ridiculous. So the way I've been looking at it lately has been like I remember when Ebola was kind of a thing, and that was really scary. And um, I remember. My own personal feelings were like, I never blamed, I guess it came out of Congo. It's like, I never blamed Congonese people for Ebola. I went, oh damn, the epidemic came out of of Congo. Mm. Man, I feel sorry for people from Congo. They had to deal with this. You know, I didn't go like, damn, these people, what were they they doing to cause Ebola? You know, that, you know, I, I, I didn't think that. And so my hope is that that's what most people think about with you know, quote-unquote Asian people, and the people who are racist against Asians will be racist against Asians anyway, you know. While stigma remains a problem for humanity, what about for the animals of the world? We put the question to Dr Chris. Do animals suffer from stigma? <laughs> um, yeah, they, they do. They're, they're very well aware, surprisingly aware, of, of how we are looking at them um, and what we're saying about them. They may not understand the words, but they, they understand the insinuation. And the the way we know that is that um, through the most trivial of things, and, and it's through haircuts. So if you if you give a a dog or a cat a, a humorous haircut, say mm. you, you turn a cat into a lion, or you you mm, shave the mohawk, dog, yeah, shave the dog, and it comes back look looking 
you know, with its skinny legs and, and little pom-pom on its tail and, and and if you laugh at it, um, it's been proven that that dog or that cat will go through a period of, of depression, which results in, in a reduced food intake, re- results in, in a lack of interest in exercising in public. Well, it's going to get laughed at. Because it's going to get laughed at and they're aware of when they're getting laughed at. So they, they know when they're... Um, they know when they're being mocked. Um, so that's why you should always talk to them. That's why you should always reassure them walks and why you should always include them in your uh, your everyday life because they're, sens- they're sensitive and they, they want to feel like they're, they're a legitimate member of the um, the family rather than, than being mocked. So, yeah, like I'm not, I'm not sure the bat population um, is sitting in, in its groups uh, and has withdrawn from society fearful of reprisal or, or fearful of, of, of mockery uh, or, or being joked about on the weekly, um, but they they're certainly they're certainly <laughs> some some animals that have shown an awareness for, for stigma. I recently read that plagues and pa- pandemics were essentially unthinkable before the advent of agriculture. Mm. What makes us living side by side with animals so susceptible to this? Animals, especially pigs, are, are great amplifiers of uh, of viruses. And and viruses, some of which, um, not a lot. It, it's incredibly rare for for a, a virus or, or even a bacteria to transfer from from animals to people. But but the occasional one that does, when it has the that capability, it, it can do it and can do it um, effectively and and find itself a host in a human that that often has no natural defence. And that's when those uh, those viruses or, or bacterial infections can can really take hold. But it's it's a unique team of, of viruses and bacteria that can do that, and there aren't many of them. So we don't know exactly how COVID-19 started, but are mm. bats notoriously good at passing on viruses? Yeah, they are. And, and look, that, that that's a genetic quirk they have where, where they're great amplifiers that if, if, if a virus gets into a, a flock of bats, it can spread very quickly around bats. Bats generally have a very good immune response to that, um, so it doesn't kill them, which is very good for the virus because it gets to stay in their body without the host dying, and then bats also move and they can spread it around. In Australia, we, we had a, a bat-borne virus only you know, 10, 15 years ago appear in Hendra virus that scared mm. the absolute crap out of, out of people. Well, that was a horse one. It is. So the way it works is bats carry it. If they're around horses, horses then consume the, the virus in contaminated feed or, or, or around, um, you know, if, if they're roosting near, near horses, horses then contract this respiratory, mostly respiratory virus. And then if a human comes into contact with an infected horse, then they can get it, and and it's invariably fatal. It, it's a very very serious um, serious disease. So did that one did that one just burn out? Did it? Because it requires this step from bats to horses to humans. When it started to emerge, Australian biosecurity was was onto it pretty quickly, and because they knew it was a new virus, they created a vaccine pretty quickly. You know, within a year, and then we were able to vaccinate horses, and so we we. we blocked that um we blocked that transmission path but it still it still killed a handful of uh, people including you know a, a few vets and then a couple of young vets as well and you know it, it, it looks a lot like rabies it's an it's an awful awful disease
Climate change was undoubtedly knocked off the front pages this year, but with predictions of more natural disasters, mass famine and further environmental degradation in 2021, anxiety for Hamish Blake is peaking again. I do suffer a real climate anxiety because there's only so much just going, geez, I think we're done, is can do for you realistically. Like, you know that the only... You know, the only rational answer now is to actually do things that and 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 hope and optimism and progress. I think play a critical role in in getting people moving because I think the doomsday message is super. Unfortunately, it's important. Like it's the it is the reality, but I think it freezes people too. Like I think when you just go, hey, by the way you know, we're, we're absolutely on a hide into nothing here unless things change enormously by the end of the year, like it's already too late. I think I'm, I'm in that section of society that both hears that, understands it, believes it, and then goes, ah, oh, shit, I don't think anything's, you know, it doesn't really look like they're going to stop burning the Amazon. And, mm. and there's, I, think, I think I feel the fear of helplessness a bit and I don't really know what to do about that. I, I, it's, I do think that... Um, you know, action and optimism are a, a, an important tool against it. I think I've found it helps to reduce that anxiety to find people and 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 movements that are actually affecting change and, you know, things like... It, it seems to me that, like, you know, I'm, I'm sure everyone's seen David Attenborough's latest thing and I, and I think they did a good... I think they did a great job of on a life on Earth of essentially at the end, like you know, you feel the fear, you feel, you get the message, you realize how catastrophically we've changed things in the last two hundred years, and I think you, you know you have to put that stuff across. And then the key, I think, of getting massive change is to to dumb it down into some simple messages, which mm. one of which is plant more trees. Like, I mean, it's there is no better, from what I understand, and, and it just seems to come up again, is like there is no better tool on the planet. Like a tree is a pretty magical machine that grabs carbon and puts oxygen in the atmosphere. And that's, we don't really have anything better on the science side yet than that. So we just need that effort. But, but the thing that sort of sinks my heart is like we're fighting short-term greed and self-interest at, at its core. Like, you know, you're fighting companies and governments that need to keep their job this year. And that's that's the real, I think that's the real um, fulcrum. It, it like pivots on where you your heart sinks a bit just to go, you know that, you know, there's a lot of good people in the world, but there's still a lot of people that are like, well, I've got to keep my job. I've got to stay elected for the next two years or I've got to, I got to keep, I'm the CEO and I got to, I got to make the share price go up for the next two years. I'm not really thinking about what that does to the planet in 30 or 40 years. I mean, I'm not, that's generalizing. Obviously some are, and I think there's good people making genuine efforts, but that, I think that's what disheartens me the most, knowing that the answer to, to turning this around is a massive global suspension of self-interest. Mm. <laughs> Dr. Chris Brown agrees. Our planet is in peril. I reckon we saw push for, for progress, push for development at the expense of, of our natural world probably reach its absolute peak. Um, and and, and I, I reckon I've been the most afraid for, for our, our, our natural world and our environment um, than I've, I reckon I've ever been because you saw 
the lives of, of animals and, you, and, and the very essence of, of what it means to be Australian uh, with, with our wildlife and, and that sense of, of wonder over our natural world genuinely threatened and, and a genuine indifference to its, its preservation and its conservation for the sake of, of the economy and for the sake of development and for the sake of progress. Um, and I, I reckon that difference between conservation and development has never been more stark than, than this year because you saw a complete indifference to climate change, complete indifference to conservation of an iconic species in the koala and it became politicised and, and nothing would nothing seemingly would, would stand in the way of, of progress and, and the economy and jobs and growth. And I think that that argument's weakening because of how paralysing a bushfire season is on tourism and, and is on 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 the way our, our country functions and and the the, the, the profound effect that it had on on Australia this last year. I, I think I think we've probably come to that realization that that you you can't have a strong Australia and, unless we do something about climate change because the consequences are getting more and more severe and more and more heartbreaking and, and it has an effect on the national psyche as well. Um, so I, I think people people are increasing willing, increasingly willing to, to compromise um, and do something about it. So, yeah, I, I can't see how that can't change. I, I, I don't see how you can have a more stark reminder of the need for change than, than we've just had. The fires knocked over about a third of the koala population. Will they recover? I, I don't think they will. I, and, and you've got a a perfect storm um, in the tragic sense happening with koalas, where not only they're losing their habitat, but the habitat they have left is becoming so consistently affected by climate change that the eucalypts, eucalypt trees are are drier and the leaf doesn't hold the moisture it used to. So koala, the word itself, um, is an Aboriginal word and, and, and roughly translates as no water. Um, so koalas were renowned as not needing to drink water and, and that's what made them so intriguing to Aboriginal culture. Um, but that's changed where there's now not enough moisture, not enough water in, in, in gum leaves, in eucalyptus leaves, for them to survive. So they need water sources. They're then having to get out of their trees, walk to find a stream or, or to find water. But habitat now is, is so restricted that they may need to cross a road to find water or they may need to, to go into someone's backyard and encounter a dog um, to find water. Um, so they're just copying it from a, a number of different areas. And, and then with their struggle for, for a home, their struggle for water, struggle for survival, then you get the bushfire sweeping through, and, and there's there's little escape for them in in their narrow narrow coastal corridors. So, um, you think they'll go extinct? I think they'll definitely go functionally extinct, where the 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 ability of them to reproduce in, in a functional, useful way with with appropriate genetics and diversity and strength as a species, I think that'll that'll diminish to the point where they're going to be in strictly controlled reserves or sanctuaries rather than in the wild. That's the imminent change that you're going to see with koalas. And the reason I, I guess I'm so pessimistic is because, I mean, not, what, eight or nine months from on from when 
koalas were literally burning, you've had a, a government decision from the Environment Minister, Suzanne Lee, which has allowed a koala habitat in Port Stephens, New South Wales, to be cleared, a, a critical habitat. I, I, I just, it, it's amazing how soon we forget and how soon we prior, prioritise economic progress uh, and development for the, in spite of an animal that that is is on its on its knees. COVID nineteen has probably provided enough of a distraction to take koala conservation off the front page to the point where they, they believe that it's okay then to to develop a, a koala habitat because you couldn't have done that in March. That wasn't going to happen in March or April. But the the nature of politics is that you you, you bait and switch enough and and you you take things off the the public agenda and, and the public consciousness for long enough, then, yeah, you can do this. That, that's just what happens. Ronnie Chang, who lives in the US, is also very worried, even at the level of individual behaviour. Man, just the way we treat, you know, daily disposable plastic is horrendous. Imagine you use a plastic bottle of milk. Maybe it takes you a week, maybe less. It lasts in the environment for ever. <laughs> That mm-hmm. one week equals, you know, uh, or even worse, a bottle of water. Maybe, what, half an hour of use? It's, it's there forever, man. It outlasts you. Your kids' kids will have to deal with it. And, and so this is like kind of lack of regard for that. I find it very disheartening. Especially in the States. Like you go to the restaurant and they give you like five cups of water with heaps of ice, a lid, 400 serviettes all yeah. packed in, in plastic. I read this thing right. once that America lives like there's five planets. Yeah, I, I can believe that. Um, so it's, that's very depressing. Um, on a brighter side, um, I have seen attitudes kind of change in the five years I've been there. I always hammer everyone around me about that stuff. So I, for one, I, you know, I, I think I've been changing the people around me a little bit. And also I've seen kind of innovation with like bioplastics and compostable single-use plastics. So that for me, you know, there's some hope there. I think the doom and gloom is necessary to kind of motivate people and there's truth behind the doom and gloom. I think there is also a lot of innovation happening. So there is a reason to be hopeful. How do you hammer people? I just go, what, you know, like, what the fuck? Like, (laughs) how can you not, how can you not care about what you just did there? You just, you know, threw this, you, you didn't, you could, you have, you could have taken a cup. You could have not taken a lid. You could have not taken a plastic bag. You didn't need a plastic bag. And how does your wife respond to those criticisms? (laughs) She uh, is not super happy uh, sometimes, but she, I, I think she starts to care more when she sees how much I care. So I can tell, for me, if someone gives me a plastic bag, I get anxiety. If I'm at a shop and they put the thing in the plastic bag, I'm already like, it, it's a situation. So she, I think she, if, if not for the environment, I think she cares because she knows I'll, 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 I'll start a situation. Um, so I think that also <laughs> makes a makes a bit anxious. Ronnie, you're not the only one trying to help the environment. Earlier this year, David Attenborough criticised Australia for their reliance on coal, and when the bushfires were raging, he posted, "Australia is on fire." Why? Because the temperatures of the Earth are increasing. Mm. So he's really getting in Australia's grill. And my question to you, Ronnie, is: Can Sir David Attenborough save us? If David can't stop the baby boomers, then I don't know who can, because the baby boomers aren't listening to us, which is the part of the problem, right? The elder generation got too entrenched. And I think in Australia, because of the global financial crisis, 
They got too entrenched because they fired middle management. There was no one to challenge their positions. So all these stuck-in-time baby boomers kind of dug in mm. and they repelled all challenges to their position. And it's very hard to get new ideas in there or change their minds because they've done things a certain way for so long. So I think the environment is part of that. You know, if we had younger leadership who cared about the future because they had to live in it or, you know, they weren't on their way out, like, like some of these people, they were able to see new ideas. There'd be a healthier balance, you know, not, not, maybe not eliminating it, but not eliminating fossil fuels, but kind of like, okay, listen, we gotta, we have to shift, you know. Right now, I feel like we've been going backwards. It's almost like, nah, f that, we'll go back to fossil fuels and whatever. How is that a legitimate plan for the future? Mm. We'll just keep doing what we've done before because it worked. It's just lack of vision, you know, lack of vision and lack of perspective of the future and of the solutions currently available. But it's not all doom and gloom. There were some amusing stories from our natural world this year, as Chris and Hamish reminisced about. There was one male baboon who was getting a vasectomy and he got on the loose. He was there with his with two female partners and he ran amok at the Royal Prince Alfred campus. I don't, do you remember this story? Oh, he got outside. About the baboon that got he, away. He got out. Mm. Yeah, I remember seeing that footage. Do you think it was wise of the baboon to have two females accompanying him to the vasectomy? It was, it's, all, it's always nice. I mean, I haven't had one, but I know it's on my horizon. And, I mean, I definitely have. I, it'd be nice if my wife came. I don't know who the second person would be that <laughs> needs to be there. I, yeah, I'm not, I mean, I was like, logically, I suppose it's my mum, but I don't think I'll bring my mum along to my vasectomy. <laughs> if he took two, because in the baboon world, there's obviously, they're obviously like, not as monogamous as we are, and if he took two to him, like dead set, like stunners, that might be why he's just like, what am I doing? This is, I'm an idiot. What am I doing here? Why don't I bring two babes to my vasectomy? I've got to get out of here. I made a huge mistake. Maybe he was just legging it. Yeah. Got outside. Okay. <laughs> well, to, be honest, I, to be honest, we're sort of acting like the baboon booked himself in for a vasectomy. I doubt <laughs> that he did. So I, I reckon as soon as as soon as you see doctors pinning you down, spreading your legs and they get a scalpel out, I don't blame him for running. And this year there was a tale of man and animal coming together that was truly heartwarming. Like many of us endlessly scrolling through Netflix, Kitty Flanagan stumbled across the documentary My Octopus Teacher. Oh... I watched it just last night, cried my stupid dumb eyes out. I will never eat an octopus again. Not that I eat it on a regular basis, but I had just made friends with some Greek people who cooked this most delicious octopus, but never again, never, ever again. That's exactly what Dr Chris Brown said, that he, um, oh he's never going to eat octopus again. First of all, one of the things that people seem less um, amazed about when they talk about that documentary is the fact that guy was just in the ocean by himself, free diving. Christ, wh- wh- I mean, how did he not die? Yeah. Just swimming around with those sharks and just when you would see where he was swimming across to get to that place, it was like, and he just never thought anything of it. It was never like, oh, it's a bit wild today, I won't go out. He'd just go, oh, it's a bit wild today, so vision's down. It's like, oh, my God. And the free diving, just that he was just holding his breath. He was a great storyteller. Amazing. I know. I've never yeah. been so enamoured of the South African accent. No, because it can be quite irritating. It was a real testament to him that I was like, oh, I'm really loving listening to you talk. And finally, we'll leave you with this happy thought from Dr Chris Brown. 
Do you think humans will go extinct? <laughs> um, ultimately, yeah, I, I do. I don't think any animal, any animal species stays dominant forever. Feels like we're putting a rush on it, though. Yeah, we're moving quickly. I think we'll, we'll become a victim of our own perceived success and, and ultimately everyone wants better, wants a little bit more than the last generation and, and that aspiration I think will probably be our own suffocation in a way because we're going to run out of stuff um, to eat, to mine, to, to live with and so it, it's going to require a fairly large change in mindset but I, I don't know if we're capable of that and then... And then you know, the universe just comes along with an asteroid and, and probably snuffs the whole thing out. So there's the positive. There's the Mr. positive. Mr. Optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for episode four of Brains Trust. On the next episode, we'll put our tinfoil hats on and delve into the world of conspiracy theories and whether or not we've lost our faith in science. There's this sort of really delicate balance, I reckon, between conspiracy theory and healthy scepticism. Part of the attraction of a conspiracy theory, I think, is also this feeling that you're not being duped. But there's obviously a tipping point where scepticism stops being healthy and it starts being deranged. That's when we next convene the Brains Trust. 